0: This episode is brought to you by the Elite Academy, formerly known as hrvcourse.com. The Elite Academy now offers in-depth online courses on multiple subjects. So if you're enjoying the content of this podcast, but you're looking for a more structured and logical progression looking at the science and application of these subjects, check out the Elite Academy at elitehrv.com slash academy.
1: Welcome to the Elite HRV Podcast, where experts share their experience using heart rate variability and other biomarkers to optimize health and human performance.
0: Welcome back to the Elite HRV Podcast. This is your host, Jason Moore. And today we have another exciting guest that's local, which is rare for this podcast. But Seth Budai, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I appreciate your time. And, uh, you know, Seth and I connected um, not with the intention of of coming on and recording a podcast originally. Um, I was looking for ways to continue my own personal exercise and movement practice without breaking my body down in what has been one of the most stressful and hardest years of my life and i don't say that um, lightly or comparing myself to anyone else but basically having a baby and a growing business and all this stuff going on has really made me uh, take a harder look at uh, how i move and how i exercise because those things are really important to me and i want to continue to do that without breaking my body down so i was looking for options. And I came across Seth and kind of looked him up and became really fascinated by him and that he was here locally in Asheville, which I thought was a gem. And so I went and started enrolling in his MoveNet classes. And uh, so that's my personal background for how I got connected with Seth. But uh, I'll give a quick uh, background about Seth in general before we jump in. And Seth is a physical educator and embodiment teacher, and he's been uh, in the movement world for over a decade, and he works one-on-one with clients to help uh, people increase their movement literacy as well as their overall well-being. And I'll just add in here that uh, Seth's depth of interest in this field goes way, way deeper than exercise and just movement patterns, and you'll probably find that out throughout this episode. But he also teaches certifications in the natural movement space uh, through MoveNAT as a team instructor. And uh, when Seth isn't immersed in teaching, he's spending his time with his beautiful wife and their Siberian husky, exploring the local mountains all around us, which are beautiful indeed as well, and finding new adventures here in Nashville. So uh, Seth believes that his calling in life is to share how the body and mind work synergistically, to create inner harmony and produce optimal health. Seth, Seth, welcome again. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah,
1: I definitely uh, I love being able to be in a place that really resonates with me and feels like home. Uh, it's been kind of a long journey for me of bouncing around the country, trying to find something that really resonates from a movement perspective as well as what resonates with me. Just from like a holistic living, you know, kind of stress-free environment. So I'm very happy to be in Asheville, in North Carolina, and
0: obviously happy to be here. Awesome, yeah, it's 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 cool. It's a, it's so this is a different experience for me because normally when we get together, I'm uh, ready to uh, become aware of my breath, and I'm ready to <laughs> become aware of what my spine is doing and how my nervous system is primed or not primed for movement or relaxation or the combination of both in the moment. So being able to sit down and just kind of pick your brain for an hour is also a selfish uh, (laughs) uh, thing that I'm doing here. But um, you, you have a lot of different, you know, your bio almost doesn't even do justice to the depth that you've been in the movement world, starting with even martial arts. So kind of maybe you could tell us a little more about your background there
1: yeah so I got involved in fitness. Uh, fitness is a weird word. I kind of I'll talk a little bit about the difference that I see in fitness and movement here in a minute. but as far as my personal journey to kind of understanding my own body and how it moves through space, definitely started with martial arts when I was pretty young got into Okinawan karate, which is you know basically a just a, another type of karate. And got really involved, loved the forms, loved the um, kind of the aesthetic beauty of movement. But at that time, you know, I was like five years old. So (laughs) (laughs) uh, I took karate for a pretty long time, but I mostly was doing, you know, katas or forms, you know, kind of moving through these very set routines of movement and I was terrible at applying those movements towards actually competing or fighting or doing anything that uh, most people in their mind conjure when they think of karate. You know, they think of actually fighting and I wasn't doing any of that because I was somewhat terrible at it. (laughs) So I kind of realized at a certain point that I really wanted to get more into the practical side of it. I wanted to find out like I'd kind of gotten as far as I could in learning the forms, learning, you know, how to, how to move my body through space, but I hadn't really learned how to move with another person. So I got into Sancho kickboxing and along with that, I got into some other styles of Kung Fu, uh, at the same time, but it really led me down the rabbit hole of kickboxing and more competitive martial arts. And things that really had a lot more to do with the uh, combative side, a lot more to do with actually interacting with another person and figuring out how they're going to move, trying to anticipate their movement. Um, and I just fell in love with you know that aspect of creating a little bit more of an environment that had more diversity to it and a lot more unknown. There's just a lot more unknown when you're up against somebody rather than being you know just yourself on the mat trying to work through different movement. And so it provided a cool contextual demand for what I had been practicing. And then as I get more into that, I kind of realized like I had done a lot of conditioning to kind of like help me prepare for fighting and, I kind of hated the conditioning aspect, but what I did love is kind of the connection between what I'm doing here versus what I'm doing in more of a competitive environment and being able to bridge that gap of, oh, there's a lot of movement that I like that's not really connected, but there's a lot of movement that I like that is connected and kind of being able to understand the role that those took as I got more and more into it allowed me to kind of go down the rabbit hole of you know, kind of the fitness and movement world and being able to slowly merge my way into becoming a personal trainer. And then um, eventually I got to where I was uh, training and helping other trainers become a little bit more proficient with what they were doing. Um, And then on top of that, really trying to understand and help impart a sense of embodiment for the people that I was teaching. Because what I had found with martial arts and something I didn't really have the understanding that other people didn't know was how in touch with your own body allows you to be able to um, navigate a lot of other spaces, whether that's other sports or whether that's um, even like being able to allow your body to relax when it needs to relax or allowing it to ramp up when it needs to ramp up and just being able to negotiate those spaces were something that became really, really familiar for me, but something I found as I got more and more into educating others that most people didn't have a really good access towards being able to manipulate that and be able to negotiate, you know, what does it mean to actually get into a deep state of relaxation or, or a very heightened state of, you know, uh, you know, kind of looking at it almost like you're going to be lifting a really heavy weight or something like that where your nervous system needs to be excited. Um, and kind of understanding that there's, there's a reason for both and that both play a role and one's not better than the other, but learning and being able to manipulate between the two, very, very important. And one that I've seen over time, uh, a lot of kind of beautiful things happen as people get more and more in tune to that
0: no, that's huge, and you know, I, I just um, I was just telling you before we hit record that I recorded with another local guest, Dr. Susie Gronsky, and she's like a pelvic. She's a doctor of pelvic uh, physical therapy, rather, that focuses on pelvic health, and she said one of the things that people don't really get with pelvis specifically is that it's not all about tensing it it's not all about kegels right, right? <laughs> yeah <laughs> basically like relaxation of the pelvic floor is, is one of the things that people are missing the most especially when it comes to doing movements that require tension in other parts of the body um but relaxation in the pelvis right and yeah. so um like i'm not going to repeat a bunch of stuff that she said but to me like It's just kind of that relationship between tension and relaxation is something that I immediately told her right after we recorded, said, hey, you need to talk to Seth. Because (laughs) when we're navigating different spaces and um, either manipulating our own bodies in space or manipulating objects in space and things, you're always bringing awareness to me personally and to everyone else participating about that relationship between tension and relaxation and uh breath as well you know as as a kind of a help uh, a mediator of of that indeed so Mm. like when did you think when i mean you kind of mentioned that when in your journey did you really come become aware of that relationship i think when i transitioned from
1: doing movement that was mostly locomotive based so things like performing katas or forms in martial arts and learning to move through space and then changing from that to more of an interactive where I'm now a competitive environment or, um, you know, almost a sense of a manipulative environment because you're combative, you're, you know, participating with another person. And there's so much unknown about that, that it really requires you to stay a hundred percent in the moment in terms of the focus and the intention of what you're doing. And with that comes into play. So, sancho, the the style that I competed in um, for a good bit was really, really heavy in throws. So mm-hmm. I don't know how much uh, you're aware of sancho, but it's it's very similar to kickboxing. The only main difference is instead of being in a ring, you're up on a platform. Mm-hmm and you can throw off of that platform, uh, and you get points if you throw off the platform, you know, (laughs) and if you throw off the platform enough times without you falling off of it, you can end up winning the round or winning the fight. So because of that, it's very fast-paced, and it tends to be very, um, very quick, but to kind of connect what you were talking about, when you go into a throw, you immediately have to feel what you're giving and what they're giving and how to negotiate between the two Um, because so much of it is, there's a tiny bit of it that has to do with position, but so much more of it has to do with how much tension you actually have in your body and how much relaxation and then how to negotiate between the two, Mm. because a huge part of some of the best fighters in the world and even some of the best, you know, sports athletes in the world really know how to negotiate that space. And one of the things that I learned pretty early on in my fighting career was learning that when you get into a position where you can throw somebody, just going straight into tightening up and going straight into a throw is one of the worst things you can do because then you basically, you've played all your cards and (laughs) if you, you know, if they call, they can pretty much reverse it really, really easily because it's very, uh, you get very attuned to feeling that level of tension. And because you're connected to another body, they can kind of read that. And as they read that, they can manipulate that very easily. Whereas if you get pretty used to switching back and forth, you can almost create a little false sense of security where you're not giving a whole lot of tension or not giving a whole lot of push or effort against the person. And then right when the moment's right, that's when you can go into it rather than Almost following steps to go into a movement, you're kind of being a little bit more intuitive about how you approach the movement, um, which is definitely a huge part of my philosophy, too, is, is just understanding a more intuitive nature of the body and how that can affect your overall well-being. So being able to inhabit things like, um, you know, talking a little bit about the nervous system and, you know, parasympathetic and sympathetic and how your body As you get more attuned to those states, you learn what is more useful for certain things and what is more useful for other things. And being able to drop between the two um, is super, super helpful. And I've found that honestly, teaching people, like what you were mentioning before, teaching people how to excite and ramp up the nervous system, it gets so much negativity in a lot of kind of mainstream fitness stuff. You know, if you pull up, Muscle and fitness, or you open mm-hmm. a lot of like kind of traditional fitness approaches. A lot of it is very, very negative towards this like more stressed state of the body. The ironic thing is, if you go into any lifting clinic or you go into any like major weightlifting gym, it's all about ramping up the nervous system because mm-hmm. um, it it can be you know, it can act as a protective mechanism. It can also act as leverage. There's all these different things that you can really get out of maximizing that. But what I've really found too is that the further down that rabbit hole you go and the more you learn to excite the nervous system, then when you pull away and you start to drop into deep relaxation because you've kind of understood and the you've gone on both ends of the spectrum, you really learn and understand what it feels like to really relax. Um, So in my opinion, if you've really never taken your nervous system up to that point, it's really hard to really feel the full relaxation. You know, it's, it's kind of like if your arm's been in a cast all year, you know, you take it out of the cast, it may or may not feel relaxed. It's not probably going to feel a whole lot, but then if you you know, you you basically tighten it as tight as you possibly can and you hold your arm for a couple of seconds and then you allow it to relax. You can really feel that sense of calming, that sense of release and relaxing. Um, and I think that can be super helpful when it comes to just the overall state of being.
0: Mm, that's huge. It's, uh, So many, so many things to unpack there. That's (laughs) awesome. Um, I mean, on the one hand, like I've even seen in therapy situations where like a manual therapist is trying to get uh, you to relax a muscle, for example, that you might have tension around like an injury or something. And they may try to coach you to um, like contract the uh, opposing muscle or contract the muscles around it so that you can feel a little bit more tension. That then gives you like a just awareness of the tension that's better. And then you, when you relax, you can relax it fully. I don't know if that was really a clear message. Yeah. But that's one end of the spectrum. And then the other end of the spectrum, I've heard some really cool things from some really high performing athletes about the relationship of tension and relaxation. And one of those is that the elite sprinters, I actually even used this story in the interview on two days ago <laughs> with Susie, but. Um, The elite level sprinters, the thing that sets the best apart from uh, people who are just really good at sprinting is that the best sprinters can actually relax more of their body um, while propelling themselves forward at maximal speed. Right. And so basically having Excess or unnecessary tension in the body while maximally contracting all of your forward propulsion muscles and tissues is the most efficient way to propel yourself forward, right? Versus if you're uh, fully tense unnecessarily or maybe I said that wrong, but if you're fully tense unnecessarily in all these muscles and tissues that you're not using for forward propulsion, it's just working against you in that sense, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I've seen that a lot with elite level climbers too. I mean, if you,
1: if you've seen the movie free solo, um, which, you know, pretty big film. So a lot of people have, uh, it really gives you the sense of, wow, a lot of the preparation has to do with how calm, you can keep your body even though everything has to be tense to make sure you stay on that wall and you don't fall to your death. And there is like this, this very um, intense feeling within your body when you learn to maximize that and you start to realize how comfortable even with tension your body can get because you start to peel away those layers those extra layers that don't necessarily need to be there um, so climbing I think is a great example of that because it requires so much tension especially when you're new to it and then as you get more tuned and you get you know higher level I guess you could say it really becomes a um, a movement that you start to really embrace the calming effect of your nervous system and you start Mm -hmm. to understand that all that tension you're putting into the movement there you obviously need a certain amount otherwise you're going to fall off but for most people as you peel away those layers and be able to negotiate that you start to be way more efficient because your body can move in the areas where it's not staying tense much much easier and then the areas that are staying tense can be as as anchors or as supports for the other movement. So, um, yeah, I think that could go into a lot of different sports, you know, mm-hmm. sprinting, climbing, um, you know, cycling, even a lot of sports where people tend to hold a lot of a lot of extra tension that just doesn't need to be there. And it really has more to do with connecting a higher level of intention to, towards how you execute the movement. Because at least what I've found with some of the higher level athletes that I've worked with is that those athletes, the main reason that they're in a different league than their, you know, amateur, uh, counterparts is because they can negotiate that really well. So they learn to conserve energy. You know, it's like a, an efficiency principle of just becoming more efficient with what you're doing so that you can do that thing for longer. So if you're going to go for a five mile bike ride or a 10 mile bike ride or a hundred mile bike ride, it doesn't really matter how far you're planning on going the more you can dial into that level of efficiency and the more you can negotiate that balance between tension and relaxation the easier the entire movement's going to be and the more you can maximize and get the most out of your performance too you can you know see hopefully your speeds and everything go up because there's no wasted effort there
0: yeah yeah it's yeah there's uh, sports are such a neat way for us to kind of learn about the human body because of the de- uh, demands that they put and the diverse amount of demands, especially if you look across multiple sports, right? Um, but one uh, another fact that I learned, which was I thought really interesting, from an Olympic uh, medalist uh, sprinter, I guess you would say, or runner. I hope I don't butcher which they would consider them, but it's the 800 meter, which is sometimes considered one of the hardest. Uh, races um, because of the combination of sprinting and distance Um, but basically this individual said that uh, there was a study done on Olympic athletes and found that you would think that they probably specialized in their sport at an extremely young age and just became like a specialist in that sport but Uh, In reality, uh, the data showed that uh, most of the athletes in that study had played five or more sports as youth, and they were often very diverse sports, and they specialized actually later in life than you would have thought, um, but they went on to be Olympians in their chosen specialization, but they the hypothesis that came out of that was that that broad base of diverse movement and context that they were able to experience made them much better. It created a much stronger foundation to build upon for when they did specialize.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, one of the things that I work with a lot with uh, individuals is building, I call it building the base of the pyramid. So whatever the whatever the main thing you want to use your training for is going to be the very top point of that pyramid, which is going to be ironically, the thing that you spend in until you're getting closer to whatever the event or whatever the competition or whatever the specific thing that you're going to be doing is, you're really going to spend a lot less time, especially at first doing that. You're going to spend a lot more time growing the diversity of what you can do outside of that sport. So that not only can you keep your level of injury prevention very, very high, but you can also allow your body to be able to adapt much faster for movements where you're a little bit less conscious of how you're moving because you can kind of feed into a lot of complexity in those lower levels of the pyramid. So if you kind of think about it as, as you learn movement, your, your mind is really going through multiple levels of learning. And as you get into more of a Going more from a conscious competence, or more of a uh, you know, more of an intentional. I can do it, but I need to focus intens- in, intensely on it. Uh, the more you get yourself into that state, then when you go to things that are somewhat you know you don't have to focus on as much, you tend to give yourself a little bit more of an advantage because you've kind of used a little bit more brain power for developing some movements that might even be secondary or, um, you know, auxiliary to what you're actually um, planning on doing in your sport. And by doing that, you kind of are building your brain power to be able to access and manipulate and change movement slightly. And it's probably one of the hardest things to do with really high level movement, uh, or sorry, very high level athletes is to take their movement and adjust just one or two things and keep them at a very high level. Mm-hmm. Um, cause usually what happens is when you learn a new movement, you, you really are regressing. Like you really have to go back, you have to learn it and then you have to build that back up. But what you can do is you can use auxiliary movement um so an example of this would be like you're taking a really high level climber and you're teaching them how to crawl. Mm. It's a movement that is similar to climbing um because the pattern is very similar. Um it's a little different obviously using a little bit different muscle groups, but as far as the kind of the overall um the overall coordination aspect of what you have to accomplish is very similar. But if you take somebody like that and you develop a pretty um pretty complex crawl. You can allow them to adapt in ways that when they go back to the climbing wall, you haven't changed anything about their climbing, but you have changed something about their mind and how their mind gets used in their movement. Um, So it can be pretty impactful. And that kind of leads me into helping to understand the difference too, between the fitness and the sports specific way of training, and then your overall movement, um, which is really, really important to Address and look at because as we get further down the rabbit hole of looking at a specific sport, it's really important to know that the the main base of any pyramid is going to be your overall movement, what you're doing on a day to day basis, whether that's your habits, whether that's your environment, um, you know, whether that's you know parking really close and walking into the grocery store, whether that's parking really far and walking <laughs> into the grocery store. Um, those small little changes because there's way more frequency to how often those things are being done, they're going to have a much bigger impact than what your very specific type of training is going to have. Mm. So, And they can actually help to bolster and make that training way more impactful if you have a very broad um, movement diversity in, like I said, your movement not necessarily or not just your fitness and being able to kind of negotiate – Not necessarily completely separate the two, but at least distinguish that what you're doing on a regular basis is having a big impact into your fitness. So making sure that you're kind of setting yourself up for success in terms of giving yourself lots of opportunity for not only practicing more and more movement and getting more and more movement, but also allowing for more and more diversity um, so that you can, like I mentioned before, it's going to allow you to increase your performance
0: as well as decrease, hopefully any chance of injury. And I think that the cool part about that part of about this line of thinking is that it also brings, uh, brings elite athletes and other athletes, recreational athletes and fitness people um, back to being human, and uh, and that that's something we can all relate to, right? So um, for every elite athlete out there, there's probably thousands and thousands of people who do some kind of recreational activity that revolves around a sport or a fitness practice or just general exercise. They may go to the gym, but at the end of the day, we're all humans first before we are a football player or before we all, you know, are a CrossFitter or something like that, right? And so for the average person who uh, doesn't make their money off of a sports-specific training uh, or sports-specific performance, um, this relates to them as well, right? So like me as a good example, I like to be as fit as I possibly can, but I don't get paid to be as fit as I can, right? And so... Um, There's like not a lot of uh, modern cultural incentive for me to really spend a lot of time on it other than people recognize, you know, maybe there's like some identity and social benefits to being fit or whatever. But um, so I guess my point being there is that when I look at my day to day life, I spend the majority of my time working on the computer or cooking or going to get groceries or, you know, housework, stuff like that. So it kind of echoes and resonates when you say that all of that activity combined and and how I navigate through those activities is going to have a pretty profound impact on me uh, as well as the athlete. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And a big part of it too is just understanding the freedom that comes with moving more regularly. Uh, I think we, in like a more... um, I hesitate to use the word egotistical, but in a society that really prioritizes what you look from an aesthetic standpoint um, and really reinforces that with how people train, it really takes away, I think, from the sense of freedom you have when you just can move well and you can move often. And that's something that I think is starting to creep up a little bit and people are starting to become more aware of it but it's still something that is a little bit more in the shadows of what people are aware of in terms of really living their their best life like being able to live the most um holistic and the the most carefree and stress-free because there's a lot of things you know, from even, even from a physio- physiological standpoint that you get from movement and whether that's small movement, like just getting down and getting up from the ground or whether that's bigger movement, like, you know, running or even walking where I have a decent amount of repetition, I'm, I'm going for a decent amount of time. Those things over time allow your, allow for a lot of different, you know, high level benefits, outside of just a pure aesthetic. And I think as we get more and more into understanding what freedom of movement really gives you and getting in more and more into that diversity of movement, I think the more we'll really get into kind of stepping away a little bit from from a purely aesthetical or from a purely aesthetic standpoint. And as we do that, I think there's there's almost a a key there to be able to unlock a more Uh, vibrant potential. There's something that is going to be a lot bigger in terms of what you can do when you start to focus a lot more on the movement and the movement quality and what you're trying to get out of the movement. I mean, and to be honest, athletes are a good example of that where – what they're really focused on is their sport specific thing. They're not necessarily focused on what their body's going to look like. Um, And I think we can probably take a page out of that book. They still look phenomenal, but it's not their focus. And Mm -hmm. I think as we get more away from the focus of that, I think potential is actually much higher when we get more into understanding like we're a human why not move like a human? Why not, you know, enjoy <laughs> movement? Why not enjoy, you know, if I want to crawl on something, if I want to climb on something, if I want to roll down the hill or, you know, whatever it is, like kind of embracing that childlike creativity in terms of what's around you. Because at the end of the day, like most people can tell you sitting in, you know, sitting in a chair for eight hours a day doesn't really feel awesome. Right. So it's <laughs> like, I mean... Maybe for some people it does and, you know, more power to you if it does. But if for you, most if people... If you train hard at it, it, can, yeah. <laughs> it it'll can, it feel good eventually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and same same goes for, you know, for movement. You know, if you just move around a little bit more, your body becomes more adapted and more accustomed to those movements and you'll end up kind of craving it to a certain extent, you know. I, I've been in the movement world for, for a good amount of time, most of my life. And, you know, if I go even... Even three or four hours without getting up and stretching and moving around and allowing my spine to round and allowing my spine to extend and giving just giving my body some love and movement, um, I I get I go crazy <laughs> like I yeah. I have to have that you know and I think the more you get that the more you realize how much you get from it and the more potent it is in terms of really allowing you to feel what it feels like to dispel. Ex- dispel stress that's kind of caught up in your body and just little things that may flare up and you may, you know, may not think much of it, but when you're moving around a lot, you can kind of get this regular feedback of, you know, this is kind of, you know, bothering me. Maybe I need to like show my hips a little love, get down on the ground and move around a little bit, or, you know, maybe my, my shoulders like feeling a little, little strange. Maybe I need to, you know, hang, or maybe I need to do something to give it a little love. So, kind of being more intuitive about your movement and incorporating a lot more movement and thinking about it more as a, I'm trying to get the most freedom out of my body. Um, or even like if you're in a sport or whatever, you know, I want to get the most in terms of performance or whatever it is, but trying to kind of step away from that purely aesthetic standpoint and get back to more of a movement conscious way of thinking.
0: Yeah, that's, that's huge. I, uh, I, I want to come back to that. Um, word freedom, because that's something that I didn't relate to exercise or movement up until uh, just a few years ago. I suppose it started kind of kindling in the back of my mind that um, what I was really craving was freedom and uh, not necessarily the ability to do a specific number of reps on a specific weight or something like that, which I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having that type of goal either, but... Um that uh, concept of, um, as I got more fit or capable of doing different movements, I realized there was some translation into other areas of my life that increased my confidence in navigating, life basically right so it was like oh i'm at home and i need to pick up something heavy great i've been practicing picking heavy things up so now it's a lot easier and i don't need to worry if i'm doing it wrong or if i'm going to hurt myself or anything like that yeah and then taking that even further thankfully i kind of uh discovered that unloaded movement is also really uh liberating so to speak and now that i have a baby who loves to be all over the my all over the house and playing and finding herself in really weird positions and everything and um, she really enjoys it when I get down on the floor with her and crawl around and do goofy stuff and like you know putting myself in what you might consider a compromising position if you were looking at a normal uh, gym uh, <laughs> prescription yeah right. But I feel pretty confident in being able to do that because I have become more conscious or I've put some more conscious effort into developing a more diverse movement patterns. But I guess where I'm going with this is like the you, you know, you mentioned the stress uh, that we that we feel from uh, our kind of environment that uh kind of restrict some of that movement freedom uh, inherently, like chairs and things like that. We spend a lot of time at desks or chairs or in the car or um, doing things where technology has sort of taken the need for diverse movement out of the equation, right? Um, And that stress is is something that I've uh, heard a lot of people talk about, uh, but not with relation to movement as much, but usually about like food. Like there's there's wild food all around us, especially in Asheville. You can forage and find food, but nobody really knows what's edible anymore. So when people look around, they just see plants that don't look edible, and that there's theories that there's an underlying stress to that because our natural biology and our evolution is like wanting to be aware of where where's food, right? Uh, just in case it runs out, I, I need to be aware of where more of it is. Yeah. Right? And, and our natural biology uh, and physiology around movement is that when we have pain or we think something's going to be painful or strenuous, uh, we tend to like shy back from it, right? We, we want to like protect ourselves by being still and energy efficient, but that protective mechanism developed in an environment where we were forced to move anyways yeah right so basically you didn't really have a choice in pre-modern times you had to move to survive and so the protective mechanism was beneficial because if you got an injury or something like that you couldn't just like go to the doctor and get it fixed so you would you know protect it temporarily until nature and the world around you didn't allow you to you know, shy away from movement any longer, forced you back into it. But nowadays we can be like, okay, I've sat on the couch for the last 20 years and going and exercising seems stressful and painful. And I might hurt myself and I might sweat a lot or be uncomfortable or do these things that are not necessarily um, inherently motivating. Yeah. Um, But I think it's important to try to figure out how to get through that hurdle that's actually a mental hurdle and reengage some of that natural movement so that you can reduce that stress and feel more free in your day-to-day life and it's a self-perpetuating loop like you said i've been i've been rambling a long time here <laughs> but but basically that that stress and that freedom are uh like two ends of the spectrum right so like yeah the less you move, the more movement will be, seem stressful to you. And the less you move, the more stressed you will be on a day-to-day basis um, just trying to live. And yeah. So how do you, as a teacher and educator, and this is one of the other things that I really appreciate about you, is that having been a mover your whole life, you've done a really good job at connecting with people who haven't been movers their whole life and helping them not only philosophically think about, okay, yeah, I need to move more, but actually getting them through those steps of addressing here's a small discomfort that we can break through today. yeah, And then here's where that's going to take us tomorrow. Like what's your progression? Or I know there's a lot of detail to unpack there, but. Yeah, I definitely, yeah, I want to unpack a couple of things because I think it's important to
1: think about, I like what you're talking about, about the kind of the movement nutrition aspect of it. And I think it's, it's very similar, you know, if you kind of draw, uh, draw the analogy of someone who it has a very poor diet and they've been, you know, eating Cheetos most of their life and not really eating whole foods or, you know, eating a piece of broccoli or, you know, things that really are coming directly from a source rather than, you know, super packaged and um, super processed food. You really get to a sense of, you know, if someone's going from a very, very processed diet, Well, they might be able to like jump right on like a really hardcore, like stringent, you know, I'm going to follow all of my macronutrients. I'm going to look at my fats, my proteins, my carbs, I'm going to get it all dialed in and I'm going to do it perfectly. And, and the problem with that is it usually causes them to run into a brick wall and ends up allowing them to kind of, or puts them in a position where they end up relapsing and going just right back to what they were doing before. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a really good analogy for kind of what people try to use fitness for rather than using movement for. So, you know, another way of looking at it is, you know, I think about fitness, almost as if it's like a multivitamin. Like it's a great addition to what your movement is, but your movement is your main nutrition. Mm. That's what should be the majority of what you're getting on a day-to-day basis. And same goes for if you're gonna try and slowly merge in um, and kind of, whether that's starting a quote-unquote fitness routine or whether that's starting a movement routine, either way, you have to be very, very slow and progressive with how you're approaching things to make sure, like you said, you're just getting into some slight discomfort, but you're never getting into pain. You're never getting into like extreme fatigue. Um, we have a culture, especially within fitness where people really like to drive home intensity and really like to drive home. Like if you're not working hard, you're not going to get the results you want. And while in some ways that has, that has some, um, some supporting science behind it, it's not necessarily the best approach in terms of a long-term solution. It usually can, can help in a very, very small vacuum (laughs) in a container. Um, But for the majority of people, I think really a much better approach is to get people moving more consistently and on a higher frequency. So, and when I say a higher frequency, I'm basically just talking about you know, kind of like what I mentioned before, like park your car a little further away from the shops or like allow yourself to, you know, have to, you know, put a pull-up bar in your room and every time you pass it, you hang for a couple of seconds, you know, like incorporating more movement into your day. That's not like a dedicated, like I have to go to the gym and I've got to sweat for 30 minutes. Um, cause I think what that does is it really sets up this deficiency where people use that as their entire nutrition, as their entire movement you know, uh, yeah, their entire movement, nutrition, I don't know, really a better way of saying it. So as they get more into moving, then you'll get more comfortable with movement. And as you get more comfortable with movement, you can slowly change and take the intensity and really whatever direction you want to, you know, whether that's doing yoga classes regularly or whether that's doing a CrossFit class or whether that's Coming in and taking my movement class, you know, mm-hmm. what, whatever you decide to do, <laughs> um, but really making sure that as you approach it, you're approaching it more from the standpoint of this is a di- an addition to what my movement is already doing, rather than this is my sole movement practice. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that happens way too much. It even happens with a lot of fitness instructors where, you know, as long as I go to the gym for an hour, all my movement's in. I can sit on the couch and watch TV the rest of the time, and Your body, like you mentioned it earlier, your body is extremely efficient and it'll become efficient at whatever you do or whatever you don't do. Mm -hmm. So if you want to sit on the couch, your body will get adapted to sitting on the couch. Whatever you do more, more times than not is what your body is going to try and adapt towards. So doing these really small chunks of higher intensity exercise are really setting you up for potentially not for everyone, but setting you up to. You know kind of go down the rabbit hole of not moving a lot of the you know a lot of the time that you're not at the gym to try and allow your nervous system to kind of get back to its uh get back to its baseline you know um which hopefully if you're moving more consistently and more regularly your body is more accustomed to adaptation your body's more accustomed to you know i've got a little bit of a spike here and then i'm bringing it back down i've got a little bit of a spike here and then i'm bringing it back down rather than i'm going to go to the gym for an hour and i'm going to you know basically go as hard as i possibly can i'm going to you know red line i'm going to spike up as high as i possibly can and then i'm good for the rest of the day mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of like makes it really really tough for your body to negotiate that um and obviously that even becomes more magnified depending on where you are hom- hormonally, where you are age-wise, um, you know, injury-wise, all those other things kind of factor into it. So the more movement someone can get on a regular basis, especially incorporating that movement as they transition into something like a, a more regular fitness routine. And keep in mind, I'm not saying that fitness or training is something that people shouldn't do. I very much believe that that should be an incorporation into what you're doing. But I think the primary should always be looked at in terms of your movement. And like you mentioned even before, your environment will dictate your movement. So changing your environment a little bit may be a good uh, tool to allow you to slowly incorporate more movement. Uh, So a good example is like getting furniture that's a little bit lower to the ground. Or sitting on the ground, you know, like if you're going to sit and watch a TV show for 30 minutes, like just sit on the ground instead of sitting in a chair, you know, Mm -hmm. like small little things like that can can do a lot in terms of just opening up and allowing you to not only like think a little differently, but also allow you for some some added, you know, tools for opening up mobility, added tools for um, even even allowing for more movement complexity just because of that environment changing.
0: Yeah, the complexity piece is really interesting because um, so I guess I want to pick your brain a little bit on the psychological side of this, too, because when even for me, myself, um, who conceptually gets all of this to me, there's a a certain like um, pleasure, so to speak, of going and getting a good sweat on and saying like I lifted something heavier than I did last time or something like that. Um, And I feel like I'm going and really doing good work, right? Yeah. Whereas with a movement practice, uh, so I guess in a sense, um, if I can relate this to like the business world, so to speak, it's like going to a conference or a meeting and having like a really motivating session where you're like, "Yeah, we're going to go conquer the world." Yeah. Right. Very Tony Robbins. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then you leave that conference or you leave the gym. And you go back into your normal environment and back into your normal life. And it's actually not the excitement from that event that's really going to carry you towards better a better business or whatever. It's the day-to-day habits that you have and the day-to-day activity that you do that's really going to make you succeed in whatever you're trying to do. And in this case, move better and live in a more like f- natural, physical way. Through movement, it seems to me more like a habit, uh, and more like there may not actually be these big dopamine hits or anything like that 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 come immediately from integrating that habit. So, from a motivation standpoint, there's probably what I found. Maybe I'm slightly answering my own question, but I want to ask your opinion on it. Is that there's thresholds that you reach if you can build that habit. It may not seem like, okay, if I sit on the floor versus sitting on the couch when I watch TV, like I did that, let's say yesterday and today I don't feel any different. I don't feel more mobile. I don't feel like I can move any better. Nothing really, you know, whereas if you go to the gym and you get your sweat on like, oh, I'm sore today still. Like I know I did something Mm, right. Yeah. And so how do you kind of like think about that from a psychological standpoint?
1: Yeah. I think there's, well, there's a couple of things. I think for one, it's, I've always found it kind of a enticing and interesting feeling when soreness becomes like a motivating factor. And that's, I think the case for a lot of people where the soreness makes you feel like you've put in effort, you've like done something positive for your body. Um, but at the same time, that soreness is not necessarily the best thing. Um, in terms of if your body is moving around a lot, not to say that you'll never get sore, but more often than not, your body is getting sore because that's your only movement throughout the day. And a lot of times if you're moving more consistently, the same type of workout may or may not make you sore. And some of that has to do with range of motion. Some of that has to do with just sheer amount of weight. Like, I mean, and some of that you're going to be sore regardless. But one of the things that I like to kind of bring it back to is, you know, and you kind of, I think you touched closely to it, but didn't quite say it. Like if you eat one healthy meal, it doesn't necessarily make you healthy, right? (laughs) But if you, you know, eat one bad meal, it doesn't necessarily make you bad or, you know, doesn't ruin your diet. So thinking about it more in terms of, we're trying to get a bigger picture rather than, trying to isolate it down to one day because I think a big part of it in terms of getting more, uh, you know, depending on where you're wanting to go and what you're trying to get out of your movement, which for me is always going to be freedom. Like that, that is definitely like a running thread of like what I try to impart more to the people that I train as well as what I try to get more and more out of is getting more freedom of movement. And what I personally found is, Yeah, the first couple of days are probably not – like you're not going to notice a ton. But over the course of a week and then two weeks, you'll notice a big difference. And in my opinion, a much bigger difference than just going to the gym for one or two days. Um, Now, the biggest thing is some of those differences you have to be somewhat intuitive to be able to feel and understand what those differences are because we're getting into – opening up and using and getting more movement which may or may not correlate to your body physically changing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, looking at the mirror and saying like, "Oh, I don't see any changes, so I don't want to do this." Well, it's looking at it from a very purely aesthetic standpoint and like I was saying before, even a very high-level athlete is not looking in the mirror. I mean, some of Some people for sure are, but (laughs) a lot of high level athletes are more worried about how can I shave a second off my time or how can I get a little bit higher on my jump or whatever it is that they're trying to achieve. So trying to look at it more as I want my hips to be more comfortable in this position or I want. So like having a marker so that you can return back to it is really really helpful. So for instance, like like hanging is a good example of something that I regularly tell people to try and do as often as possible because I think it's it's extremely therapeutic for shoulders and for your back. And and obviously you want to be sensitive. You got you know injuries or whatnot. Like you have to be a little bit more in touch with your body to make sure you're not gonna, you know, cause any issues. But doing something like that regularly allows you to really build in like I want my body to get stronger. Okay. What does stronger mean? Where do you want it to get stronger? Do you want your grip to get stronger? Okay. You want your grip to get stronger. Okay. If I hang, you know, 10 seconds every day for a month, I'm going to get way stronger Mm -hmm. from a grip strength, grip strength standpoint. (laughs) It's kind of a hard one to say. (laughs) Um, So allowing yourself to have like very specific things that you're trying to get out of your training or out of your movement practice helps a lot. And that might even be using fitness as like a reflection or as like a mirror of what you're doing in your movement. So for instance, I could incorporate a lot of movement and then go to a fitness class. And based off of my movement over the course of a week, after going to the fitness class, oh wow, like I actually feel a little less achy. I can warm up easily. I don't really need a a long warm up because my body is staying a little bit more warm on a regular basis. So it does take a little bit more, um, like I said, more intuitiveness in terms of picking up on some of the smaller subtleties when you first start to incorporate more movement. But I think designating and knowing this is what I'm trying to get out of my movement practice helps a lot because knowing that it's not like, Oh, I'm going to, you know, look in the mirror after sitting on the ground and I'm going to have a six pack. Like, (laughs) it's not about that, you know, like, like over time of incorporating more movement, more than likely your body will change, but it's changing from the sheer frequency of what you're doing. It's not changing from, like I said, one session or, you know, even a week of, you know, sitting on the floor or hanging or, you know, doing these things that are somewhat built in, you know, even So something like walking is a good example. Like you can walk a lot Mm -hmm. and walking is one of those things where you'll definitely get fatigued. And, and some of that might even have to do with footwear and different things, but it really has a lot more to do with how much you're allowing your mind and your body to get regularly um, giving the the opportunity for those movements to happen. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if I choose I could walk most everywhere that I go. I most of the time might choose to, you know, skateboard or ride my bike or get in my car. And you know, so a lot of those things are figuring out what's attainable, what you can incorporate now and just slowly building it up and realizing that, you know, you're going to be in this body for probably a pretty decent amount of time, <laughs> yeah. hopefully, you know. Yeah. And so understanding that it's it's a much longer track than just saying like, Oh, in 30 days, I want a six pack, you know, really understanding like I'm going to be living in this body for a long period of time. Do I, do I want to focus exclusively on aesthetics? And maybe some people do, and that's perfectly fine. I have nothing against it. Um, but what I'm really looking at is I want to feel freedom throughout my life. I want to be able to be 80 and still be able to get down with grandkids and be able to, you know, piggyback them around. And, you know, like kind of do the things that, you know, some of the things that make life special.
0: Yeah. And, and so, you know, the psychological cues and um, emotional cues and the, like energy and motivation cues that are sometimes hard to detect, but if you're looking for them can be a little easier to detect is some of the things that I've found to be pretty powerfully motivating for me. So like the more I integrate movement into my life, the more... I feel motivated to do that. And the more I feel motivated to go to the gym too. So like you're saying like it can really you can use the gym or like a fitness scenario to help benchmark how your daily movement practice is impacting you. One from the fitness side directly where it's like, okay, I can lift more or I can do more pull ups or I can, you know, do I can try harder at the spin class or whatever, you know, whatever it is. But um, the actual motivation to go to the gym is another cue that I've noticed, like, I pick up in myself is the more I, I, like you said, keep the body warm. And and there's a quote that I heard from, I think, a yoga practitioner that was like, warm body, cool mind. And, um, you know... A lot of times we're opposite in modern world. Like our bodies are cooler than they should be because we're not using them, and then our mind is overly active because we're overusing it. Yeah. And so, like uh, flipping that a little bit and having a warmer body and a cooler mind can be a bit more beneficial. Um, But I find that if I'm able to do that, I'm much more motivated to go to the gym too.
1: Yeah, it's it's kind of like Kelly Starrett, you know, kind of. Um, I think was maybe one of the first people to kind of talk about like a tiger doesn't warm up and (laughs) it's an interesting sentiment. And when you first hear it sometimes for a lot of people, it's especially people who work in the fitness world. It's like, well, what do you mean like that? That's not tigers. Aren't humans. Like you kind of go into this like enthralled sense of like needing to get justice kind of thing. And it's funny because when you think about a tiger, its environment is all about movement. Like even when it's resting it's resting on the ground it it is moving the majority of the day mm-hmm. like that's what its life revolves around and if we incorporate a lot more movement in our day there may or may not be a you know a uh, a sense of needing to have such a long dedicated warm up you know for a lot of people if you you know i kind of think about it as what have you been doing before you come into the gym? If you haven't, if you've been sitting in a chair, if you've been standing for long periods of time, and that's all you've been doing, you probably need a pretty long warm up. Mm-hmm. But if you've been moving around, you've been walking from place to place. You know, maybe you even walked to the gym. Like your warm up can be pretty, you know, like it can be very dialed in, very specific towards what you're trying to get out of your training. Um, but I think it is kind of a a different perspective and one that feels almost unintuitive. It like doesn't feel right. But the more you realize, like, oh, our environment and how little we're moving is the main reason we're needing to warm up. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I definitely think it's a very accurate statement,
0: especially for how the body and mind connect as well. Well, you you know, I want to add some uh, more personal stories, which, like, our, our listeners are used to me, like, talking about myself a lot. But, uh, um, you know, that's one of the reasons why you do a podcast. That's right. <laughs> but, uh, um, but, uh, but I've actually... Uh, had my own experience relating to what you're just saying. And so, and I even on the motivation side, which I'll work in here, is that, um, you know, the nature of my work is such that I use the computer quite a bit. And so there are times when I don't get to incorporate movement as much as I'd like. And I do feel like, okay, if I was to just um, all of a sudden jump across my office, right? <laughs> I might hurt myself. Because I've just been in this like stuck position all morning and um, I'm, I'm cool and my joints are cool. I haven't done really anything. But then if I have a day where like, let's say on Saturday, I just go for a walk with the family and we go walk to the park and I haven't really been doing anything like strenuous or I haven't really warmed up or anything. It could even be cold outside about the park, I just feel the urge all of a sudden, the motivation to like jump onto a platform that's at the park. And our dog uh, and our baby now gets all excited when I do random things like that. So I have like, for one hand, this motivation to impress my loved ones and make them giggle or, or get excited. But on the other hand, it never crosses my mind in that day that I might injure myself jumping onto that platform because it feels so natural having just walked there. To just do it, yeah, and they're like there's no like uh, psychological barrier for me to do it either, because I feel like, hey, you know, I got up this morning, I got to go on a walk, something like that, and then I've been able to incorporate that into my normal days too. so like when I come to your class, for example, if I come in the evening and I've had a really busy day at work, I feel like... I really need to to warm up like I need to take time and uh, and, you know, you're you're guiding us through that anyways. But um, even as we get into more targeted uh, conscious movements in the class, like I'll start a lot slower and try to like build up. Yeah, and I've got developed some self awareness around that, so not everyone uh, is there yet. But then on other days, um, I'll come in and I'll just jump onto the pull up bar <laughs> right away and hang and like you know be like, hey, what are we doing today? Yeah. And I'll run into the class and roll onto the floor, <laughs> right? Yeah, and it's because for whatever reason, I've felt like I've already moved that day. I've already sort of warmed things up. I didn't do any targeted warm up. Hmm. but I just had more movement in that day. And I, and I, I don't know if I actually fully connected those dots in my mind till just now when you kind of described that. Well, and some of that
1: too, even has to do with the environment around you. Even, you know, like you're like a good example of that is like walking to the park. Like you were saying, like, what you see around you, one, is constantly changing. You're on natural ground, which means there's probably some give and take. So your ankles are moving differently than how they would normally if you were on just flat level, you know, concrete or asphalt or whatnot. And then as you get there, you're starting to see more and more opportunities for movement. And so there is a sense, too, of, like, not only is your body a little bit more warm because you've been moving a little bit to get there, there's also a sense of all the things that are around you are screaming at you to like play with them because you know, those movements and you know, like, Oh, I might be able to do this on this, or I might be able to do this on this. And environment can really help to kind of create that sense of playfulness, but also that sense of, um, of allowing for different movements. And even like how you go about warming up can have a lot to do with the environment and what's around you. You know, usually like if you go to the gym, a lot of people are kind of led by what other people do in the gym in Mm -hmm. terms of warming up. And a lot of that is just like, okay, the gym's kind of set up a dedicated space for you to be able to warm up with these tools. And there's kind of this idea that, you know, things need to be warmed up this way and you have to approach it in layers where you do this first and then you do this and then you go into your actual workout. And one of the things that I think can be a little tricky with that process is it kind of puts your body in a sense of it's not safe to move unless I go through the protocol. Mm, I, have to, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have to fill this form out. I have to check this box. And now I'm okay to move. And when you get outside and you start to just like look around, you start to be a little bit more... Um, inspired by the environment around you. And so instead of being like a, okay, well I need to need to warm my hamstrings up a little bit. And again, I'm not saying there's not a time and a place to warm up. And I think for a lot of people, you're probably going to need some dedicated time of giving your body some love, especially if you haven't during the day. But being in more complex environments and especially environments where you had to travel a little ways to get there, there is this sense of inspiration to be able to and want to move and do all kinds of different stuff that you may or may not allow yourself to do in other settings. You know, you might not do the same thing even with a similar setup at the gym because there's not that sense of you know, like you never really seen someone do that before you kind of want to try it, but the equipment's not really meant for that. So -hmm. there's like this sense of outside. It's kind of like, well, if I want to jump on a rock, I want to jump on a rock. Like it's, (laughs) it's not like, oh, this is a dedicated space for, you know, this type of exercise. It's more, you know, it's a, it's a space that you can play around in. And, you know, and that's one of the things that is usually too, like even looking at like Like your child developing, like looking at a baby and how it develops. It's like, you can kind of start to learn that with like the environment that they're in and how they navigate that environment. And to be honest, I mean, we're still, we're still coming to terms with how our body moves through space. even up until we die. So learning how that environment can dictate and shape our movement. And the more we're able to embrace that, I think the more we're giving, giving ourselves an advantage when we go to do any type of specific training, but also, um, in terms of just our overall life of creating more freedom and, you know, even a more stress-free environment where, you know, my body can, can move, And I don't have to worry about, you know, am I doing this right? It's more like, well, I'm moving all the time. So I'm kind of constantly keeping my body warm. I'm moving in lots of different planes of movement, um, doing lots of different types of movement. And with that comes into play of like, I usually are thinking more if I'm doing a lot of more diverse movement and along with that thinking more usually keeps you a little bit more conscious of, you know, okay, if I'm going to land on this, I need to land, you know, probably this way, but it's not like overthinking it. I'm going to do 15 repetitions of this. It's more just like being a little cautious, but still willing to kind of embrace the environment around you and the complexity that that environment creates.
0: I like how you kind of highlighted that it's not what we're talking about is not black and white, right? Like there's a, a spectrum, a gradient, so to speak. And we're not saying don't warm up or we're not saying if you sit on the floor when you watch TV that you never have to warm up at the gym again. <laughs> you know, anything yeah. like that We're we're saying that or you're saying and I'm uh, gathering and supporting uh, is that the more you incorporate movement, the less you have to rely upon those things and it's probably creating additional safety for you at the gym as well but it's also not saying that if you just move more and sit on the floor uh, occasionally that you can go do a max effort back squat without warming up or priming the nervous system or something like that but one of the cool things too like if we uh drill in on real quick is that you mentioned how the brain uh and the like diversity of movement, excuse me, and the complexity of movement uh, and the interaction of the brain in that process. One of the things I've heard you say is that when you walk on terrain that is uneven or you're experiencing some new uh, slightly subtle changes to a movement pattern, it actually activates the brain and the neurons in a different way and can increase neuronal activity and have impact on on the brain i've even heard people relate it to neuroplasticity you know i kind of like we don't have to go completely down the rabbit hole on that but maybe you could unpack that a little
1: yeah i think one of the more potent examples i think for a lot of people is when they think about um going barefoot on natural surfaces um especially things that are like a little bit more jagged, right? So like putting your bare feet on jagged rocks usually gives this image of, oh, wow, that's going to be painful or wow, that is painful. And usually what that is is just an overload because your body gets so much feedback from your feet. And because we're not regularly interacting with the ground with our feet, we're not like we're not able to negotiate those signals as well. And so then when we put it put our feet on something that's going to be a pretty decent amount of sensation, we automatically say, that's pain. Mm-hmm. And a big part of understanding how your body's trying to talk to you is being able to negotiate what is discomfort and what is pain. And so many people go one way or the other. And it c- happens on both sides of the equation where, Either you feel like anything that's slightly outside your comfort zone is pain and, oh, like, that that's something I can't do. Like, basically, you you mark it as, like, this is not for me or this is not something that's going to be beneficial for me. This is something that's going to be dangerous for me. Or you go down the other side and say, like, well you don 't really know how to negotiate the two, so it 's just kind of like well it 's making me tougher like no I paid no gain, yeah, I can just get tougher, you know and really, what it is is a sense of balance to where you can start to learn how to interact between what your brain is telling you and what your body is telling you and being able to negotiate, like what is slight discomfort and how can I create and live in that space of slight discomfort and allow for adaptation and allow for more communication, but not give myself so much that I'm causing damage to my body. Um, So I think that's a great example because you can take your feet, you can go without shoes, go barefoot on, on something even relatively soft like grass. And if you haven't done it a lot, you might even feel, it might even feel uncomfortable at first, but it's only feeling uncomfortable because you're getting so much feedback and it's, you know, it's very similar. You know, a lot of people when they get down on the ground, it's kind of the same thing, like learning how to crawl again. Like if you haven't crawled since you were a kid um, it can feel very uh, difficult both from the standpoint of what you need to do coordination wise, but even from just the tactile sensation of what it feels like to have your, your hands and feet on the ground at one time, it's giving you a sense of, uh, of feedback that a lot of people are just not used to, especially when it's slightly uneven ground or you're going uphill or you're going downhill or the surface is slippery. You're getting all these new uh, ways of communicating. And the more you can open up and allow for that communication and allow for your breath to kind of guide what you're capable of, the more you'll be able to adapt as things get more complex and as things get more challenging. So, um, like, you know, a lot of people are familiar with Wim Hof. Like he's a great example of using the breath as a way to calibrate what the body is capable and possible, but you're also using the breath and the mind and the body to allow for what should, you know, when you do need to say stop, you know? So like, and I think a perfect example is like, like I've seen, um, I think it was like his first or second time trying to break the world record for the uh, the ice bath that he mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. He got out of it. And like just knowing when to say like, oh, that's too much.
0: Mm-hmm. Like
1: knowing that is a very deep level of wisdom and very well communicated between your mind and your body. And really that happens a lot through your breath. So the more conscious you are of your breath, the more your body can stay in more of that parasympathetic uh, state and you have a lot more open communication between uh, you know what is uncomfortable and what is you know pain and what is kind of the lines in between and how can I get like more solid with those lines so yeah that would be my two cents on on helping to negotiate between the two using the breath and understanding that. there is a sense of your body has to have a little little discomfort in order to adapt. If it doesn't have that, it's not going to get stronger. It's not going to adapt. It's not going to get better at what it's trying to do. So you can't live in comfort all the time, but at the same time, you don't want to be in pain all the time either. So there is a sense of balance. And with that sense of balance comes really understanding your body at a more intuitive level, which happens from learning and processing movement on a more regular basis. And some of that can, like you said, even come just from a complex environment. It doesn't even necessarily have to come from learning a specific technique. I can just take somebody, put them out on a more uneven terrain and just tell them to walk as they normally walk. And just those slight variations in the ground are going to change and make you more in tune to I've got to kind of be cautious of how I step because I don't want to roll my ankle or I, and some of that's good because you do want a little bit more intention towards how you're moving. um, But you also are able with those slight changes to make, you know, continued slight changes and hopefully progress towards more complex movement um, and, you know, learning more diverse
0: movement along with that. Yeah, that's, you know, I guess, that the spectrum of learning, which you've brought up before, too, uh, of unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence to conscious competence to unconscious incompetence, or no, competence. (laughs) Unconscious competence, yeah. uh, Unconscious competence, (laughs) is, uh, uh, or in my case, unconscious incompetence. (laughs) But, uh, you know, that spectrum sometimes uh, is like how far you can go into unconscious competence is sometimes... Um, hard to to see when you're either unconsciously incompetent or, or especially when you're consciously incompetent, right? And so I guess the example there is that when I was a kid, I remember playing soccer on these super pothole-ridden <laughs> fields with yeah. uneven stuff. So a lot of times they'd have rocks on them. Basically, it's just like any public flat space of ground where you could get a few people in a ball together. You can play soccer on and yeah, you could like cut your foot or you could roll an ankle, but you navigate that environment so frequently as a kid. And so naturally, and I was never worried about rolling an ankle. when I was sprinting at full speed yeah. on an uneven ground with potholes in it. And I'm, like I would fall, you know, that's another thing is as a kid and growing up in sports, you learn how to fall just through playing the sport a lot. But a lot of people are afraid of falling rightfully. So if you're not practiced at it, it can injure you very easily. Yeah, absolutely. But then if you have here coming back around to freedom, if you can fall and you're pretty confident that you're not going to hurt yourself, then you can take a little more risk with your ankles because If you have the practice and gradually have worked up to, um, if you need to take load instantly off your ankle, off a gut reaction, it's kind of coming back around to your martial arts uh, uh, stories from earlier where you start to intuitively feel the environment or the interaction of things around you and you can react like subconsciously and instantly to it. Yeah. Then oh, I'm running full speed, I step in a pothole, uh my ankle and all the sensory uh systems, my nervous system immediately lifts all my weight off of my foot without me even having to think about it and I fall, but then my body's like okay, now I'm falling and it automatically puts the patterns into place to where it minimizes the damage of a fall. So here now, again, I have multiple layers of freedom that I was able to experience by just incorporating play and movement across an uneven surface as a kid. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, I can sprint on an uneven. And I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily confident today as an adult in doing that, right? Well, and I think some of that
1: confidence, too, just has to do with the sheer volume of what you're doing in your mm -hmm. movement routine, right? So it kind of comes back to that movement before training thing that we were talking about earlier, where understanding that your movement needs to be the bulk of what you're doing. And then your training needs to be specific towards what your weaknesses are. So for instance, your movement, if you're not walking around a lot, if you're not, you know, playing soccer, tons of, you know, you probably, I'm guessing we're playing soccer a lot at that point, yeah, you know, yeah. like, Every so, day. yeah, exactly. <laughs> which I'm guessing you're probably not playing soccer regularly now. Nope. <laughs> so it's like, you know, things like that, where it becomes a thing where a lot of people like to associate it with like, Oh, well I'm older now, so I can't really do some of these things or, you know, Oh, well I have this injury, so I have to make sure that that's protected. And all of that is not bad in and of itself, looking at like kind of where you're, where you're at but you don't want that to limit how much movement you can get and incorporate because the more movement you can incorporate in your body, the more comfortable your body gets with said movement and the more complexity and the more things that you can learn with that. So even kind of addressing your point of like the role of like rolling out or falling off of, um, you know, just tripping, you know, you fall from a trip and you just roll out of it. Like it's, it's a skill that, Some people learn when they were kids, some people didn't, but it's also something that As you get more and more comfortable with the ground, you get more comfortable with just things like crawling or being down on the ground, watching TV in a seated position, like some of the stuff we're talking about. Like As you get more comfortable with that, you tend to stay a little lower to the ground because you're not quite as afraid of what the ground has to offer. And so there's some interesting psychological play that comes in as you get more comfortable on the ground. You start to understand that like, Oh, like falling is actually not that big a deal because I can just bend my knees, stay really close to the ground, gently transition from one thing to the next. And, you know, again, it kind of comes back to doing more movement, get you more comfortable with said movement. And then on top of that, also finding someone who can teach you you know, efficiently how to do movement that you're unaware of, you know, so something right. like a break fall is a movement that a lot of martial artists are very proficient at, um, you know, and it's in a lot of different methodologies, including move We, uh, you know, teach the break fall and it's, it's an extremely important way to learn how to keep yourself safe, but it's also a way to, like you were saying, inhabit more freedom. Like when you're not scared of falling, you're willing to try things that you wouldn't otherwise try and you know you're going to be okay, you know, because you know how to fall correctly.
0: And I think that again, putting this on a spectrum, not black and white, right? We're not saying, or I'm not saying uh, that I'll ever achieve the same level of freedom that I had when I was a kid. But in some ways, going through this practice and creating these habits has created even more freedom than I had when I was a kid and I didn't even know. Like, I feel like I'm much better at climbing. I'm much better at lifting heavy things. Those types of freedoms have been accumulated recently for myself. But um, so if you're listening to this and thinking, well, I'm never going to be sprinting across a field with potholes and then (laughs) like, you know, flopping on the (laughs) ground. That's just a kind of extreme example of the amount of freedom you can achieve when you slowly build up this and increase the frequency of the exposure to new uh, environments and new movement patterns. But I want to uh, use your perfect segue here into you have a lot of practical intention around your movement practice, and it's not just about randomly moving all the time, right? Correct. You mentioned MoveNet you, you know, you still teach what some people might consider a fitness, uh, practice, but when they kind of get to know you realize it's a lot deeper than that. Um, so what is MoveNet? Why do you teach it? And then, you know, how can people learn more about taking a practical approach to this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, like you said, most people kind of have no clue where to start and, you know, you can start by doing a couple of different things, but MoveNet is really you know, at its core, it's a physical education system that is really meant to develop the natural movement skills that we came up as human beings, uh, starting to develop as children and then we usually get to a certain point and then we either kind of stop or we start to regress and kind of losing some of that movement as we get a little older. So really within MoveNet we start from the ground up. So we start on the ground working through even just different seated positions, working on posture, working on breathing, working on just getting more attuned to what that feels like to get your hips in different positions, reaching in different positions, um, really allowing for a comfort in positions where um, a lot of people don't know how to navigate real well, even transitions between different seated positions, different squatted positions. And as you get more adept and as you get more fluent with those movements, um, you know, we get into everything from jumping to vaulting to climbing, um, where it really becomes, the world becomes your playground. Um, But one of the things that's important to note with MoveNet that's a little different from a lot of other, um, I guess you could say like primal type fitness kind of stuff is that we very much try to view things from a holistic lens of looking at it from the big picture of movement. How do you move on a regular basis? How can we get better at moving on a regular basis? So how can we increase your efficiency? How can we incorporate more movement into your daily practice? And how can we focus on not just what you can do, but what you can't do? Mm -hmm. And that's a huge part of understanding MoveNet in a nutshell is we're really trying to find the movements you can't do and then allowing you to be able to do them to open up that, that big picture of movement. And so, you know, within MoveNet, um, you know, I teach classes in MoveNet and I teach, uh, teach that methodology one-on-one with people as well. And then I also lead certifications if someone wanted to become a trainer. And that's also something that can kind of allow you to see a perspective that, if you've never really gone down the rabbit hole or you never really were interested in becoming like a fitness trainer, but you really wanted to see like what the picture of understanding movement from a trainer's perspective, uh, MoveNet certifications are pretty cool because you're able, there's a lot of people that are not necessarily going there to become a fitness instructor. Mm -hmm. They're really coming there to kind of almost see the back door of what, uh, what MoveNet has to offer, but also things like progressions and regressions for movement of, you know, okay, I, when I get down into a squat, my heels come up or I can't keep my back upright, you know, addressing and finding those things and being able to allow your body to adapt through subtle changes to allow you the most, um, not only the most efficiency in some of those movements, but also kind of open the doorway to be able to do movements that maybe you couldn't do previously without at least a little bit of education around it or a little bit of instruction around it. Um, so that's what I, I'm hugely passionate about MoveNet as a methodology and obviously imparting that sense of freedom to other people um, through that sense of, you know, kind of building from the ground up, like basic building blocks of, uh, of how we develop as kids. And then hopefully we continue to develop. And like you said, there's definitely going to be some things that as an adult that are harder than they were when you were a kid, but there's also some things that, can be very surprising that you're much better at as an adult that you weren't very good at as a kid. Yep. And so it can be very freeing to kind of understand like, Oh, this is not like a linear progression of it goes up and then it goes down. It's very much a very complex orchestrated, um, puzzle to try and figure out. And as you get more and more into the puzzle, the more you realize there's, there's more pieces than you realized. <laughs> so
0: that's, that really hits it on the head because me personally, um, You know, I went into it thinking, like, um, I'm a pretty good mover in certain ways, and I knew that I have weaknesses, too, too, but I can do a lot of pull-ups, I can do muscle-ups, I can do one-legged squats, I can lift decently heavy weight for being a smaller guy, and so there's a lot of benchmarks that you would say I'm a pretty good mover at, but then we get into MoveNet, I can see that I can take those same movements way further than (laughs) I could ever have imagined. But then also at the same time, the things that I'm weak at or the things that I'm lacking are sometimes quite basic. And and so just doing something like crawling on a two by four with all of my limbs in a straight line versus having a nice wide base that you would think of crawling on like a floor is uh, not really like... It's not like you're lifting a lot more (laughs) weight, you know, you're still just crawling, Mm -hmm. right? But just the dynamic of adding that different position and the different balancing requirements, I'll find myself um, able to figure it out with your guidance. But then even further, uh, some things that highlight that it was pretty challenging for me is that I'll even like hold my breath while doing it, right? And then you bring that awareness to me as well that I'm a breath holder. And <laughs> anytime I do something that is challenging or I haven't done before, if I'm stressed, I tend to hold my breath. And if I can breathe through the movement, it becomes not only more efficient, more sustainable movement, but then that translates back to my normal day-to-day life. I become more conscious of when am I holding my breath? Like if I'm nervous in an interview or if I'm going into an important meeting or if I say something and I'm worried about, how the other person's going to interpret it I'll say it and then hold my breath <laughs> literally <laughs> and, and uh, it's it's brought consciousness and awareness to me of so many things that I was doing that I didn't even realize and then I feel like I'm building a much broader base I've done so many movements that I never even knew existed um, we'll do little puzzles like <laughs> try to get up from the floor in 20, 15 different ways or something right and yeah I'll easily be able to come up with like five or six ways of getting off the floor and feel all cool. (laughs) And then I get to that seventh one and I'm like, dang, I'm not even halfway to 15. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's kind of a fun puzzle, but I'm planning on personally attending your move certifications and I'm not planning on being a coach, but to me it's been a powerful tool for me to learn more about myself. And also I feel like, um, it has allowed me to just nudge others around me, my loved ones and stuff in a positive direction too, as I've been able to learn more and, and understand the why behind some of it as well. Um, so it's motivating and that's another reason why I'm gonna attend your Uh, training so when is the next training
1: so the level one there's a level one and level two that are paired together but you don't have to do both most people do level one separately and then you know obviously take a little time because there's some pretty decent um you know there's quite a bit different um movement and more complex movement in level two versus level one so we've got a level one certification coming up in march so march 20th here in asheville will be uh it'll be friday saturday and sunday and then the level two will be on Monday and Tuesday. And the biggest thing that you'll kind of get out of it, not just being able to learn and understand these movements on a much deeper level, but it's also the camaraderie of being able to be a part of a community with a lot of like-minded people that really see and share this understanding of trying to incorporate more movement into their diet, trying to incorporate more complexity into their movement diet. Um, And then at the end of the day, you really get a sense of seeing where you can go with your movement. So like what you were saying, even with like kind of not knowing, like when a lot of people learn a movement, like a one legged squat, a lot of people think like, okay, like I've kind of learned the hardest movement I can on one leg. And then you start realizing like, oh wow, there's a lot of movement you can do on one leg. And (laughs) there's a lot that's, you know, very complex. And there's a lot that's very, very simple. And you know, some of that is, You know, really attainable, and some of that, like, would take a long time to develop. But at the same time, it gives you this really big picture into wow, I can really take this wherever I want to go. I can, you know, it can help a lot in terms of an addition to, you know, working and training on like some type of sport specific type, uh, you know, trajectory, or it can really help with just day-to-day, like, you know, um, let's say I'm 70 or 80 years old and I just want to be able to move more freely in my day-to-day life. Like there's no age requirements. There's, you always find a very broad range of what people are capable of there'll be some things that you're shocked that you can't do. And there'll be some things that you're shocked that you can do. And it's kind of a beautiful
0: picture because of that allows you to see things from a more holistic lens. That's huge. And, um, I think that's a good place to wrap up. And I'm, Excited about attending your training and continuing my training with you and really appreciate your time sharing all this with us here Yeah, thank you. Is there somewhere online that people can find more out about you?
1: Yeah a couple of things So I teach classes here in Asheville Um, So move Asheville and Instagram and Facebook you can find us and we post uh, quite a few community events that are completely free to the to the public so you're more welcome to come and jump in on a class I'm also on, on You can find me both as an online trainer, as well as leading these certifications. So you can kind of see when my next certification coming up is. Um, obviously this next one is in March, but outside of that, you know, I'll be doing different ones around the Southeast predominantly. And then, um, yeah, outside of that, there's a couple other things that I do, but As far as MoveNet and as far as training goes, that's probably the easiest way to find me. And uh, I also do one-on-one trainings through Plank Fitness here in Asheville, uh, which is a little bit more specific towards what someone's goals are going to be rather than just kind of the bigger picture of the classes. Awesome.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Seth. This has been a really awesome discussion. Um, Again, partially selfish (laughs) because I love picking your brain on this subject and um, you know, the integration of mind and body and the incorporation of complexity and the balance of stress and freedom that we've talked about has all been like those subjects have really hit home for me in recent years. And um, I just appreciate the work of, you know, people like you. And thanks uh,
1: for having me on, Jason. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Well, thanks. Yeah.
0: The Elite Academy now offers in-depth online courses on multiple subjects. So if you're enjoying the content of this podcast, but you're looking for a more structured and logical progression, looking at the science and application of these subjects, check out the Elite Academy at EliteHRV.com slash Academy.